In this episode of the St. Philip Institute podcast, Bishop Strickland and I sit down with Steve Weidenkopf to talk about his new book, Light from Darkness, Nine Times the Catholic Church Was in Turmoil and Came Out Stronger Than Before. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Eternal Father, you called St. Philip the Evangelist to open his mouth, and beginning with Scripture, tell the good news of Jesus Christ. By virtue of our baptism, we too are called for the salvation of souls. Still instill in our hearts the zeal of St. Philip, that we may convert hearts and minds to your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome to the St. Philip Institute podcast, uh, where we talk about how to navigate a life of faith. I'm Stacy Tresankos, here with His Excellency Bishop Joseph Strickland, and our special guest, Steve Weidenkopf. He is a, a adjunct professor at the in church history at the Christendom College Graduate School of Theology in Alexandria, Virginia. And Steve gives numerous presentations and seminars, most known for his expertise in church history, but also marriage and family life and human sexuality. Uh, Steve has been the director of the Office of Marriage and Family Life for the Archdiocese of Denver from 2001 to 2004. They have a very impressive Office of Family Life. Um, and you were advisor to Archbishop Chapu uh, and the inst- an instructor at Our Lady of the New Advent um, Catechetical Institute. Um, so we're so happy to talk to you today about your new book, Light from Darkness, Nine times the Catholic Church was in turmoil and came out stronger than before. Welcome to the podcast, Steve. Thanks so much, Stacey and Bishop, for having me on the podcast. I'm happy to to be here and to talk about my new book. Thanks, Steve. Well, I wish we had time to go through all nine of these, so we'll just go through some of these nine times, um, and people can get the book to read the rest. Uh, It's a wonderful book. I love the way it's organized. Uh, there are the, the nine chapters, but there's also a chapter on how to respond to the crisis in the church and how not to, uh, a, an excellent chapter. And each chapter starts with the crisis and then the renewal. And it's just an excellent reminder all the way through. I mean, in, in addition to having some really interesting history of the church, it's a reminder that, um, that the gates of hell will not prevail, that, that the church always can come out on top and it's it's such um, hope during these times when we feel like everything's a crisis Uh, chapter to go through chapter three yeah i think so tell us more about chapter three uh the title um the one on i can't get to the sorry i had it opened and it closed it's on uh, clerical corruption and sexual yes. immorality. Yes. And well, you know, thanks again for the opportunity to talk about the book. And I guess maybe before we get into that chapter, I just want to, if, if I can indulge a little bit, just to provide some background and context into why I wrote the book and yeah. uh, which Absolutely. I think would 
will flow nicely into our discussion on the chapter. And, you know, one of the main reason why I wrote the book, frankly, is because when I would going around teaching, giving talks on church history, I would always I would usually get asked the question um, in the last several years, uh, you know, are we is there has there ever been a time as worse in church history as there is now? Um, and that was a common question I got uh, frequently, and I and I thought to myself, you know, well, why why are people asking me that question, right? And why do they assume, or why why do they think that the current problems and troubles that we have in the church today uh, are the worst time ever in church history? Because my immediate reaction, right, uh, kind of steeped in church history, is was to think, well. Well, no, this isn't the worst time in church history. There's been all kinds of horrible problems in church history before. Um, so I thought, well, maybe people just don't know. Uh, so that was one aspect of the book. Let's, let's provide some additional historical knowledge on what has happened in the past in the church's history. But then I did, dug a little deeper into that, and I thought, well, why why is it so that we're so focused on you know thinking that our problems today are the worst ever? And I think that the answer to that question really came to me was was just kind of how our present society is structured, right? We're so focused on the here and now, so focused on the present that we, we've lost a sense of historical perspective. Um, and so that's what I wanted to provide in the book is not only historical knowledge, but also an historical perspective. And, and Stacey, you said it perfectly, I think, at the very beginning here that, you know, hopefully reading through these dark times um, shows us that the dark time is not the end all be all, right? That, that we had some troubles, some problems in the past in the church's history. We're struggling with things today as well. But light comes from that darkness, right? Each of these nine periods, as you pointed out, right, follow, there's a, a renewal or a reform or restoration that comes as a result of the crisis. God does bring good out of evil. And so I wanted to highlight that and give, give modern, you know, Catholics in the modern day uh, a sense of hope, right, to maybe lessen our anxiety about the things that, that we are struggling with. Not to, you know, to whitewash or to put aside or to ignore any of the problems that we're dealing with. Um, I'm not I'm not saying that, but rather just to give us a greater sense of perspective on on those things. Mm -hmm. uh, and that falls, I think, nicely into this particular chapter we want to look at here on clerical corruption and sexual immorality. That really was, um, and so learning about that history here in the 11th century gives us, I think, a greater sense of perspective of what we've been dealing with in the last several decades. So, so to get the to set the context, what's yeah. happening here in the 11th century is uh, in the in the church in, in Western Europe in particular, we there's a series of of significant abuses and problems that sadly have crept into the church, um, and there are two major ones really at this time. And what's crept into the church at that time was um, the abuse of what's called simony. Or the buying and selling of ecclesial offices. So you actually had people, you know, noblemen, secular lords, others who would, uh, you know, buy in essence a diocese. They would buy the position of being a bishop. They would give money in order to be able to do that, or to be the abbot of a monastery. Uh, many different reasons for that, but a lot of it had to do with the fact that monasteries in Christendom at that time were huge engines uh, of the economy, uh, and you know, produced a lot of of agricultural items and things. And so, in order to increase one's wealth or position or authority, one wanted to be a bishop and one wanted to, to be the abbot of a monastery. So that was a significant problem. Another issue that was was in the church at the time was the the um, the clergy not following and not um, abiding by their promise of celibacy. And so we had situ you have situations where priests were living openly with women in concubinage, uh, even marrying them in violation of, of church law, fathering children. Um, and so that was a significant scandal and a problem for the people of Christendom. 
um, but also you had in the monasteries rampant homosexuality as well. It was a significant problem in many of the Benedictine monasteries of the time. Uh, and so what happens in this time that I try to illustrate in the chapter, as is is evident in many of the other chapters and, and situations that we that I go through as well, is that the Lord will raise up and does raise up a, a particular prophet. It could be a saint or a layperson um, or a cleric who sees the situation and who kind of shines a light on the situation and says, enough is enough. There needs to be a time of renewal. We need to stop, you know, this kind of behavior. And in this time in the 11th century, it was the great St. Peter Damien, uh, mm -hmm. a man who was a monk, who, uh, you know, could saw firsthand what happened in the monasteries. And so Peter decided to write a book uh, to the Pope at the time, Pope St. Leo IX, and encourage him and exhort him really to begin this reform of the, the clergy. Uh, and later on, that book was given the title, The Book of Gomorrah, it wasn't a title that that Peter himself gave to it, but um, you know he's very frank in this book about the things that are going on, sadly, in the monasteries and, and the rampant clerical uh, sexual immorality. And uh, you know, not only does he kind of shine a light on it, but Peter also talks about it in in a way that's um, you know understanding, if you will, that that you know the sin needs to be condemned, obviously the sinful behavior, but that there needs to be mercy shown to those mm -hmm. who who are contrite, right, who do these things. So. It's a it's a poignant story for the things that we're dealing with in the in the church today, even. Really, Steve, I I'm I really appreciate your uh, how you've introduced this and as you begin to talk about this chapter because it this historical perspective I think it's one of the most essential elements, especially living now in the 21st century. Because what occurred to me as you were talking is that. The powers of the day crucified the leader of this church, Jesus Christ. And talk about bad times for the disciples, the apostles, all the believers. It looked like it was done. And the great light of three days later, mm -hmm. I mean, that's how it all began. So you inspired me to realize that that's the church <laughs> is recognizing that the power of the world is often encroaching on the the spiritual power the the spiritual strength of the church and so in a sense it's it's somewhat logical that you're going to have this repeated pattern the world thinks it's going to conquer mm -hmm. what god has given us through his son jesus christ and Really, probably, if, if you got into a, a debate, if you had people from each of these eras trying to say, well, ours was a worse time, <laughs> I think the apostles could easily say, listen, we've got you beat because right. we were there when Jesus died, and we hoped, yeah. we tried to believe in his words, but we didn't know he was going to rise from the dead. So that is the pattern. The yeah. world tries to conquer it looks like it is, but it doesn't get it done, and the light of Christ shines more brightly than ever. So that brings me great hope just as we're talking about this. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, absolutely, Bishop. I mean, thank you for that. I think that's that's very poignant and 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 uh, right on on the mark there. You know, it's it's it, and, you know, Christ said right in the Gospels that if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. So, kind of persecution or you know struggles and turmoil and conflict is something that's that is is a constant pattern and theme, if you will, all throughout church history. And so we we shouldn't be surprised, right, by when when those things when attacks either internally or externally happen in the church. Um, and clearly, church history shows that and illustrates that, that there have been significant dark times. But as you point out, right, the, the time of the crucifixion was a very, very dark time, obviously. But then three days later, right, the light of the resurrection. So uh, even if and, and sometimes, you know, that at least the apostles were able to see that, you know, the resurrection soon after the dark time, if you will. Um, but, you know, another point that, that I think comes to mind, at least to me, especially as I was writing this book, is, you know, Although these dark times are followed on by uh, by a period of light or a period of renewal or reform, it's not always that soon, right? It, it could be centuries, you know, mm-hmm. decades or centuries after the crisis, where you begin to see the actual reform uh, and and the in the you know the revitalization, if you will, of the church and of of the faith. And so, people there were Catholics, you know, living through these different historical periods and these crises, who who never saw. The reform never saw the the yeah. greatness that came from the darkness or the light from the darkness, and and so that's that's also a good reminder and, and lesson yeah. for us that you know yeah that they remained faithful all throughout those times, right? Despite the darkness, despite not knowing if there would be a reform or renewal or or light coming again, despite all the scandal. They remained faithful. They remained faithful to Christ. Uh, they were rooted in Him, rooted in the sacraments, and they just persevered, uh, trying to live their own, you know, uh, if we, what we call today universal call to holiness, living their own virtuous Christian life, uh, despite all of the crisis and scandal going on in their own their own day and age. Absolutely. As I've read your book, um, I, that's occurred to me several times that. Because some of these, as you said, stretch more than a century uh, for that specific corruption going on. And that, especially back then, but even for us, I mean, that's maybe a couple of lifetimes where people lived in the midst of that. And what comes to mind for me is the idea of final perseverance. We, each of us individually, are called to persevere in the faith to hold strong to what we know and believe, whatever's going on. Uh, so it's a, it to me really, Steve, speaks to a very individual journey in the context of the, the global, the universal church. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly we'd, and I honestly looking back on the time before this, uh, I remember as a seminarian, as a, as a priest for many years saying, Aren't we so blessed to have such strong, uh, such a strong church in so many different ways? Saintly popes and, you know, before all these scandals broke out and everything, it's sort of been a wake-up call mm-hmm. to recognize that the, um, the, the corruption is always just mm-hmm. one, one step away in a sense. And we, we have to be vigilant. We have to be joyful but also to be clear-eyed that sin is powerful. The, the forces of evil are powerful. And, uh, but I, I really think that that is something that we really need to take to heart. All of us could live the rest of our lifetimes in this time of corruption where the church is, is not understood and many are leaving the church, sadly. 
Um, but it's up to us individually to remain faithful yep. and to know the light will return. It may not be light that we see, but we know the light of the world is ultimately in charge. Yeah, and that sometimes we have to go, just like people do in their own lives, have to go through some bad times to break through to a renewal of a better time. I loved the story in chapter 2. Um, I had heard this once before, but hardly ever do I hear people talk about the Synod of the Corpse. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that was that's quite a story. <laughs> yeah, that is that is interesting. It's one of the most uh, you know obviously macabre events, if you will, yes. in all of church history. Um, and yeah, it's not it's not as as commonly known um, as which is probably maybe a good thing, I guess, right? But yeah. no, it's it's yeah. um, many 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 people do know the story and sometimes even try to use it, you know, to to um, you know take the church down a notch, if you will, and say, oh, what about this horrible thing that happened in the past? Yeah. And yeah, you know, at the end of the ninth century that you had this 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 problem where um, because of the change in, in the geopolitical situation of, of Europe uh, and, and of Christendom at the time, you had back at the end of the fifth century to back up even further, you had the, the collapse of Western governing authority, central governing authority from Rome with the collapse of the Western Roman Empire. You had all political authority in Europe at the time kind of devolved down to more local warriors and chieftains, the beginning of what later becomes known as the feudal system in, in feudal society in, in medieval Europe. Uh, and, and the church becomes more and more involved in secular affairs and, and political affairs. Uh, and as a result of that, there are times when, um, especially as you get into the ninth century, you have these various secular rulers who want to control the papacy. And dating back um, a few uh, you know, centuries before that, you have the establishment of, of the Roman Empire. Again, it appears again with Charlemagne when Pope Leo III crowns Charlemagne in the year 800. And so you have this, these now these secular rulers who are vying to have that title of emperor, and they can only get it from the Pope. And so they, they then start to want to put their own candidates, if you will, onto the chair of St. Peter. And the electoral method back then was, was not with the College of Cardinals. That doesn't come into the middle of the 11th century. And so you you have this this real political you know uh, sense of 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 the secular rulers trying to control the church and trying to control the papacy in particular, and yeah, it, it's so bad that there's one pope, Pope Formosus, at the end of of the ninth century, who who is is constantly kind of moving back and forth between the various secular rulers of the time as to who he would give the title emperor to, uh, and so he would support one claimant over another, and then when things started to go uh, a different way, you know, the winds shifted, he would go to another claimant, and at the end of the day, all he ended up doing was making everybody mad, um, and. <laughs> And so, so much so that one of the secular rulers comes into to Rome after his death, and and if you will, kind of forces his uh, his predecessor to put him on trial. And so the the Pope at the time, Pope Stephen, actually does. He he uh, exhumes the corpse of, of Pope Formosus and puts him on trial. Um, you know, in in Rome, uh, obviously Pope Formosus couldn't defend himself, so there was a deacon that was appointed to be his defender, um, and he was charged with all kinds of ecclesiastical crimes, eventually condemned, and his body was dragged through uh, the Church of St. Peter's and thrown into a grave, and um, it was actually dug up later and thrown into the Tiber as well, so all kinds of horrible <laughs> things that were going on at the time, but I think 
illustrates for us, you know, the the uh, throughout church history, you see periods of time where, where secular authority is trying to control the church. There are those who are trying to keep the church independent from secular authority as well. Um, and and usually when when the church involves herself in these various political things, um, you know, good things don't always come out, right? Some some bad things do do uh, do are produced as a result of it. Yeah. Steve, as you uh, as you research for this, is there a favorite moment of dark or light that you that you constantly go back to? You know, for me, um, bishops, I think the I, I always go back to the 14th century. Frankly, I think that that is is one of the centuries that is is most uh, not necessarily misunderstood, but not known as well by Catholics, um, but I think it's extremely important because what happens in the 14th century, there's a significant crisis in the papacy, um, and that helps to lay the groundwork and the seeds for the mm -hmm. later Protestant so-called Reformation, mm -hmm. where you have the division of Christendom and the dividing of, of the unity of Christians, which sadly we still are, are dealing with yeah. in our own day and age. Um, but that 14th century sees the very beginning of it. It sees the papacy move its residence from Rome to Avignon. So for nearly 70 years, we have popes living in the south of France. Uh, they're still the bishops of Rome, still the pope, uh, but they're they're participating in ecclesiastical abuse known as absenteeism, where they're not, you know, their bishops not living in their <laughs> diocese. Uh, and that produces great scandal. Many of the secular rulers of Europe see the Pope living in the south of France and, and assume that the Pope is nothing more than just the lackey of the French king. Um, mm -hmm. The historical record shows that most popes were far from that. The popes who lived in Avignon were far from the puppets of the French king. But that was the kind of general thought, you know, among many people. That was the impression that was given by many of the secular rulers. Angry. It kind of turns their their mind, if you will, or their their sense of loyalty, uh, it, it really divides or even breaks their sense of loyalty to the church and to the papacy, which causes significant problems for the church vis-a-vis uh, -vis secular rulers in later centuries. Um, it's also the time in the 14th century where you have the Black Death, uh, this you know massive pandemic which impacts the entire world. And Europe sees 50% of its population die as a result of this horrible pandemic. So there's significant economic change. There's significant political issues. There's there's you know health concerns. And then at the end of that time period in the four, in the 14th century, you see the popes finally come back to Rome. Um, principally through uh, the the uh, cajoling, if you will, of one of the greatest women in, in church history, St. Catherine of Siena. And she's able to bring the Pope back to Rome. But then soon afterwards, um, you know, the Pope who comes back, Gregory XI, he dies. He's replaced by Pope Urban VI, an Italian. Uh, and he's a reform-minded Pope, but he's very uh, heavy-handed in how he deals with his, his cardinals. The cardinals get upset uh, with that, and they decide to declare that his election, their election of him was forced by the Roman mob because they wanted an Italian, and they declare his election null and void. They had no authority to do that, but they did it anyways, and they elected an anti-pope. And so um, not the first time you have an anti-pope in church history, but now because of the political situation and being in France for the last 70 years, it causes all kinds of consternation throughout Christendom with different secular rulers backing different claimants. And then eventually at one point in the early 15th century, you have three men claiming to be pope. It's just a time of mass confusion. I can't imagine. And, yeah, and it's horrible. And what should be, what should have been, right? The papacy was established by Christ to be a sense, a source of unity uh, in the church, yeah. uh, becomes a source of disunity, and is just very disruptive. Uh, it's an extremely dark time in the in the history of the church. 
I can't even imagine what that would be like if we were dealing with that now. I mean, we think we think things are bad now, but that would be. Uh-huh. You would wonder. I, I I guess I can understand why people thought they needed to leave, but it's a good reminder to stick it out. Yeah, absolutely. Could you? I mean, you can imagine Catholic Pray Twitter if it existed times. back in the day. Yeah. Um, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You should start a fake account and, and yeah. do that. <laughs> I should. That's a good idea. Pretend actually. like it's the 14, 1400s. That's right. Um, I know you do a lot of talking on um, Galileo, the whole Galileo affair, and, and um, you included that in the book as well. Uh, do you see any parallels like with today with the evolution controversy and and some of the, I don't, I don't know if that, that's, that fits in with one of the crises of, of probably modernism and neo-paganism. Um, what, tell us about the Galileo affair. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, uh, it, it definitely is something that's it's still impactful, that whole story, right, of the mm-hmm. 17th century, still mm-hmm. impactful in our own day and age because it's, it's so, um, you know, there's kind of common um, appreciation, I guess, or, or knowledge of the story, but there's, there's very little actual, um, you know, how should I put it, you know, a depth of knowledge about really yeah. what happened in that situation. So the Galileo affair is used, you know, by, by people who have an animus against the church, sadly, mm-hmm. in the modern age, who, who think that the church somehow how is anti-science or against um, science and scientific advancement? And um, you know, when you when you study the history of that a bit more and peel back the onion, you see that the church was very involved in scientific advancement achievements. And many of the discoveries that were in scientific advancements that were made in you know in the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries were done by by priests um, and you know by clerics in particular and other educated uh, individuals at the time. So the church has always supported science, but the problem is is that you know science and and faith have their own uh, own questions that they answer, right? Uh, and so uh, there, and that's a good and a healthy thing. And sometimes, you know, you get into trouble when science tries to think it can answer questions of faith, you know, metaphysical questions instead of just physical questions. And then you have, um, you know, faith can sometimes get into into problems, into trouble when it starts to, you know, try to answer scientific questions or faith questions or um, physical questions. And so that's that's kind of, but you have the both and situation going on there in Galileo's time where there was significant scientific debate during his own day and age about the, the order of the universe, if you will. The cosmology of, of the of the heavens, and you know the the Ptolemaic Aristotelian cosmology was kind of the standard narrative, if you will, where you had the, you know the Earth was seen as being the center, and and uh, you know other celestial bodies, planets, you know surrounding it. Uh, but there was other uh, you know narratives as well, or, or other theories that that said that was different. And in particular, uh, you have Copernicus who who develops the heliocentric theory, which Galileo comes to adopt and embrace and and think and he believes it's true, and he believes he can prove that it's true scientifically. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the scientific community, even at his time, there was a lot of debate, and he was criticized even among his own fellow scientists for holding to it so strongly. And Galileo gets himself into trouble primarily because he tries to force the church in the midst of um, the Catholic Reformation when the church is trying to reestablish Catholic vitality throughout Christendom um, as a result of the Protestant revolt and, and po- Protestant division. And so you have the this, uh, they're, they're sensitive, the church and churchmen at the time are sensitive to any criticism that might call into question, you know, something, the, the interpretation of scripture at the time and certain 
passages of scripture seem to indicate to those at the, living at the time or be interpreted as such that it supported the Ptolemaic and Aristotelian cosmology and not a different cosmology. And so the church was sensitive to that. Galileo tried to push it and wanted the church to embrace the heliocentric theory. And so he kind of overstepped his bounds, and then later, you know, the the Inquisition in 1616 uh, rules on on the heliocentric theory and says that it can't be supported based on interpretation of scripture at that time. Uh, and so the church even then kind of gets itself into, you know, uh, making a decision or making a judgment on a matter of science, really. Um, and so, you know, again, in the guise of of understanding the interpretation of scripture. And so there's there's faults really in the Galileo affair, kind of on both sides of how it came down but um, Galileo really pushed the the decision or tried to push the church into a particular corner that she didn't want to be pushed into and she pushed back is the best way to kind of describe it and mm -hmm. so um, you know that's always I think it's it's a good cautionary tale for us to recognize that you know faith and science and faith and reason are complementary uh, and you know as 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 the late Saint John Paul II said right the infidious uh, fetus at ratio uh, faith and reason are like two wings upon mm -hmm. which the human spirit rises to the contemplation of truth it's a both and mm -hmm. uh, and whenever we have you know groups of people trying to say well science is right and faith is wrong or faith is right and mm -hmm. science is wrong that's when when both of, both of the both of those groups tend to get into some trouble and some mm -hmm. problems um, so yeah yeah. yeah, I think that's that's very significant for our time because you definitely there's one truth and, and I love, you know, so much of what Pope St. John Paul says. Mm -hmm. But in that context specifically, they are two wings and you you kind of don't fly too well if you just have one wing. Right. That's very true. Yeah. Aircraft is not stabilized if it only has one wing. Yeah, yeah. so uh, you have to have it to both end. And um, yeah, and so sadly, you know, from the Enlightenment period of time in the 17th century, many what you have is many of the kind of anti-Catholic historical myths, um, which many people believe about the Church or, or events in the Church's history, like Galileo or the Inquisition or the Crusades or all those other kind of big topics. Many of the anti-Catholic myths, historical myths that. Are, are believed in the modern world stem from that period of the Enlightenment, where you have these European intellectuals of the 17th and 18th century in France and England and others who who have who don't like the church, who don't like the church's influence in the world, and don't want the, want to lessen the church's influence, and so they begin to attack her um, and attack her institutions, in particular uh, the universities and colleges, uh, and they want to take over those universities and colleges so that they can establish their their own. Um, intellectual ideology uh, in, in a place of, of the faith and in place of the church. And so they, they kind of create a lot of these different narratives about these historical events. Voltaire in particular, one of the most um, you know critical members of, of these enlightened philosophers and intellectuals who uh, use Galileo or use the Crusades uh, as a stick, if you will, to kind of beat the church up. And unfortunately, many people still believe those, those enlightenment anti-Catholic historical myths. Uh, and so there's there's a lot of work to be done, which I've been trying to do over the last several of years to try to mm -hmm. present a more authentic understanding of those historical events from a Catholic perspective, but also just from a more authentic perspective and from a contemporary perspective of those who lived through them. Um, going back to understanding, it's important for us to have that historical knowledge so that we can have a greater historical perspective on things. Yeah, and thank you for the work that you're doing. Um, it's very appreciated. Before we go, one last word on how to respond to crisis in the church and what not to. What's your, what's your 
best advice there? Yeah, no, you know, I wanted to end the book with uh, a chapter that after going through all these crises, and even though you're illustri- I'm illustrating that there is reform and, and lightness that comes from the darkness, I thought there, I have to end the, the book in a, in a way that is more practical for, for us living today. And so I thought a great way to do that was to say, well, how should we respond? You know, we are living in a time in pretty much almost every age of church history. You can point to the, uh, the, the fact when there was difficulty, there were problems, there was turmoil, um, and people had – and Catholics had to live through that. Uh, and so what can we learn from them? And I thought, well, there's got to be a historical case study that can show us how to respond and how not to respond. And so I decided to present the two the stories of two individuals, both living at times of great crisis in the church, both Dominicans, uh, to see how they responded and what we could learn from them. And so I looked at uh, the life of Savonarola, a, f- a 15th century uh, a Dominican monk who was very, very active in Florence, and then St. Catherine of Siena who lived a bit before him in the 14th century. And many people have heard of St. Catherine of Siena, or most people have, um, but many people probably haven't heard of Savonarola. Uh, And so what we can really learn from them just in brief is that with Savonarola, although he initiated, began uh, to criticize the church and and, an activity in the church that was scandalous or that was was even sinful and immoral, he ultimately uh, allows his pride to lead him down the path of embracing heresy and ultimately embracing schism as well. And, and getting himself involved too much in politics, where p- politics becomes more important to him than faith, if you will. Uh, and that leads ultimately to his, him being condemned, excommunicated, and then even um, arrested and killed by the Florentine government. Where on the other hand, you have St. Catherine of Siena, and she lived at a very difficult time as well, the time of the Avignon Papacy, which we, we discussed earlier. But St. Catherine, even though she was very direct in her letters uh, that she dictated to various people throughout uh, Christendom, including clerics, including the, the pope, she always did her criticism. Her criticism was always undergirded by a love of Jesus and a filial obedience to his church. Uh, and so she recognized, which I think Savonarola didn't, that reform of the church has to start individually with each with, with us, right? The individual mm-hmm. Christian. So we have to, if you will, take care of the splinter in our own eye before we criticize the plank in, in the church, if you will. Uh, and so reform begins first individually, rooting one's faith life in Christ, in the sacraments, in the grace of the sacraments, in a prayer life, uh, and then flows from that an ability to criticize and to ask for and call for a reform for your religious community, your diocese, Mm -hmm. the church as a whole. But it has to start there. And and Catherine knew that, and she lived that most authentically, and Savonarola, I I think, didn't. And Mm -hmm. so that's the story for us. I think what we can take today from from that chapter, that that case study, is we have to be the ones – we have to reform ourselves. Um, and make sure that we are in, on good standing and good footing and living that universal call to holiness before then we can, uh, we can really address the larger problems in the church. Steve, I think that's excellent. I haven't gotten to that part in your book, but I, I look forward to that because I think that's a critical distinction that all of us have to take to heart because it's easy to get pulled into the politics and all the division mm-hmm. and all the turmoil. But ultimately... God's perspective is he loves all of us and he wants us all to be with him in eternity. So we need to take that to heart and reform our own lives. And uh, so I think that's an excellent way for the book to end and for our conversation to end. Yes, thank you. St. Catherine of Siena, pray for us. Pray for us, absolutely. Thank you, Steve. 
Oh, yeah. Thank you both for having me on the show again. I appreciate it very much, and God bless. All right. God bless you. And I'll end with a blessing for all listening to this podcast. Almighty God, we ask your blessing for all of us participating and listening, that we may continue to seek to reform our own lives and our own hearts, growing closer to the light of your Son. May St. Catherine of Siena and all the great saints join the Blessed Virgin Mary in interceding for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. amen.